as you start making some more money, you start paying more money in taxes. And I quickly realized, man, how do I stop paying so much in taxes? And it's a long story short, but basically I found real estate. I found investing. And what I really realized was that I wanted passive income. And so I found apartments, I found real estate, and apartments for me just made all the world of sense. It just, it clicked. Welcome to your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Jim Pfeiffer, and today our guest is J.P. Albano. He is the CEO and co-founder of Significant Lifestyle Communities, a multifamily operator. In this episode, J.P. and I talk about how passive income allows him to pursue other interests, how you can make money and have a positive impact on your tenants. He calls them members, which is great. Why it is important to find partners, why he makes the tenant member the first priority at his properties, and why cost cutting can often cost more, cost you more money than it saves. JP, welcome to the show. Let's start out with who you are and how did you get to where you are today? Oh my God, Jim! Thank you so much. I'm very thankful to be here. Um, yeah, so I was a computer guy. I was a help desk, the person you called when you had a computer problem. Many, many, many years ago, uh, I became an engineer, uh, and then I was the guy that did like uh, I call them commando style deployments. So, like, if you had a company and you wanted to upgrade your email servers, you'd call uh, the company I worked for, and I was the guy that they'd parachute in and they would do all the deployments and work through the night and all that stuff. Well, that got tired real quickly, right? And then I got yeah. into uh, into other tech. Uh, jobs and I eventually get into tech sales, uh, working as an account manager or account executive for selling uh, big storage systems and technology systems for large companies. Did that for a number of years, saw a lot of success in that. And then, uh, you know, as you start making some more money, you start paying more money in taxes. And I quickly realized, man, how do I stop paying so much in taxes? And it's a long story short, but basically I found real estate, I found investing. And what I really realized was that I wanted passive income. And so I found apartments, I found real estate. And apartments for me just made all the world of sense. It just, it clicked. And yeah. um, I made the decision to go headfirst kind of into real estate. Uh, originally as a passive investor, and then I realized I loved it more than, than sales. And so I became an active investor. And so today, uh, my my, uh, my co-founder and I, we've co-founded a real estate investment firm. We have over 700 apartment units. We are vertically integrated. So we have our own in-house property management and construction manager company. And we focus on buying older apartments, doing value-add uh, renovations in large complexes in the southeast in growth markets. Um, so that's the the very quick version of a long story. No, that that that's great. I always it's always interests me. Like, how did you find real estate? You said you know it was a tax thing led you to oh I found real estate and then you found passive income. I mean we all have a similar journey, but I'm always interested. Yeah. What was that? What was the thing that clicked? It's funny. Uh, it's not. I made it sound shorter than what it actually was. There was a detour along the way. So for me, it was like, okay, I didn't want to keep selling hard drives the rest of my life. Right? That was the <laughs> impetus. I got to a point where I was like seven years, a seven-year itch into my job. I'm like, all right, what's the next thing? I, I feel like I, did, I learned everything I could. And so I'm like, well, I, I'm paying a lot of money in taxes. I know if you're taxed uh, when you're taxed with ordinary income, right? W two active income, like that's the highest rate, right? Potentially, depending on how much you're making. If you're making money through capital gains, you're taxed at a, a much lower rate, max of 20% versus a max of 37%, depending on, on where you're at, right? So I'm like, all right, cool. Capital gains. How do I make capital gains? Well, I can be an, inv like an investor, like in the stock market. So I took a course in like learning how to tra trade stocks and learn how to read candlestick charts and all that nonsense. Long story short, I spent a lot of time, wasted some money. 
I also got like a lot of anxiety. You ever do day trading before? It is, it, it's not fun. Like you're like, all right, market opens up nine o'clock, go. And then you trade things. And then like, you know, you're up and down this emotional roller coaster, which by the way, is not too much different from real estate. But anyway, I, it was very stressful. So I, I lost a bunch of money. But what it did for me is it made me realize what I was looking for was passive income. I wanted something to make money for me when I'm not doing it. So I can go take a pottery class if I wanted to take pottery on Wednesdays at 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, right? And so I'm like, well, how do I do that? And then I remembered or kind of it occurred to me like real estate. And I'm like, all right, cool. Well, where in real estate, right? And then if you, you go down that path of trying to figure out all right, where in real estate are you going to create all this passive income, you can be quickly overwhelmed with the, the sheer amount of options that you have. Uh, for me in the beginning, like there was uh, fix and flip, wholesaling, uh, note investing was actually pretty interesting uh, as a concept that, by the way, that's like, if you want to become the mortgage holder of, of a mortgage, right? Like a bank essentially without right. any of <laughs> the shortcomings, but that was really cool, but I couldn't find any training on how to like do that. Right. So that kind of got dismissed. Uh, and then I found, uh, I found apartment investing, uh, by way of, of biggerpockets.com. You know, the whole strategy is the Burr strategy, BRR, right? yep. buy a house, you rent it out, rehab it, rent it out, refinance, do it over again. Remember, there was like a printout that I got, like a PDF, and it was like a picture of all these homes and like like uh, arrows connecting the homes. And you burr, you burr your way. And at the end of the roadmap, right, at the end of the rainbow here was an apartment complex. And I literally thought to myself, why don't I just <laughs> learn how to buy the apartment complex? Why am I going to do all this stuff? And so that gave me a direction of like, all right, in a real estate apartments, okay, now what? And then I found David Lindahl's book. Uh, emerging markets. And as a data guy, as a nerd, whatever, like I love that he broke down, like there's data science on how you can stack the odds in your favor as an investor to mitigate risk, right? And so his approach was like, well, look at places where people are moving to. Look at population growth, look at job growth, look at these economic engines that are going to help make sure that you have people looking for a place to live in the place that you want to invest. And I remember reading that book literally from cover to cover uh, in one session because I was so thirsty for the, yeah. the, the knowledge I was getting there. And that got me really excited about, about uh, apartments. Well, that's great. That, that's a great uh, circle of how, how you got there, right? Cause everyone's story is unique. Well, now you're, you're an apartment uh, operator and I've heard you say that, that, you know, apartment investing is not a zero sum game. You can make money and have a meaningful impact on tenants. So talk about that as an operator. How do you accomplish that? And, you know, both of those things, right? You're making money for investors and you're doing well for the tenants. It's, it's uh, thank you for that. That's a really good question. I, I feel like I have, um, I don't want to say a unique experience. Uh, this came full circle for me. And I'll tell you I did, earlier this morning, I got a, my partner read an email that we got from a, a tenant that lives in one of our properties. The short version was she was homeless before living, moving there. She lived through the previous regime. They really neglected everyone who lived there. Then we took it over and we've transformed the place and how she's expounded on how, like, how much better it is living there. And the comment I made to Matt, my partner, was like, it's so cool hearing these stories. Like, you know, you get into investing, you get into making money and, and like getting a rental or whatever else. But like the imp like who's on the other end is someone that lives there right person a family whatever else and like it's so great being able to to have that impact so for us to answer your question for us i had a, a detour a good detour um i met a mentor of ours in 2019 it's a longer story the short version of it is that he had a very unique way of looking at housing and people that live there and it was like bridging the gap of hospitality right like a hotel service 
and apartments. That's the easiest, fastest way that I can explain it. And so in his communities, and, and we hired him, and we've been incorporating his policies, is that people live there. We don't call them renters. They're not tenants. They don't live in units or apartments. We kind of more humanize it. And they are therefore called members, like member of a country club. But this isn't for like luxury housing, right? They're members. They pay a membership fee, not rent, although technically it still is rent. Um, they uh, they sign a membership agreement, not a lease. They work with a mayor, not a, uh, a property manager, right? And there's a community services team. They don't do maintenance. They provide service, right? And so like when you when you, a prospective member that would come into our communities, they're immediately impacted by a different experience and interaction versus our comp- competition, which you are a renter and, you know, your rent is due on the first. And if you don't pay it, you know, you get out. Yes, you get out. But also like there isn't the expectation that I have to deliver service and value for the people that live there. And we do that. And as a result, as a consequence, you know, we're the, the most expensive apartment complex in the area. But people are happy to stay there because they're getting served in a way that they can't get anywhere else. And so back to your, your, your point here, when we find properties and transform them and make them better places to live, if you think about that, it really is a win-win-win for everyone involved. It's a win for the investors that help enable us to buy these undervalued properties that are you know were in shambles before we, we took them over. We get to transform where people live and really make a, a huge improvement on the quality of life that the people live there. So that goes to affect the society, right? Because people are happy, they feel safer, all that stuff goes back to us as the operators because we're being rewarded for creating value and, 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 and that. And then also for the investors as well. And so like that's how you make this win-win-win situation. And I wish I could take credit for creating it, but I didn't. I was inspired to be at the right place at the right time to meet uh, my mentor at the time and really inspire us to, to make this shift, this hard shift into operating our communities the way that we operate. And how has that affected the performance of the asset, right? I mean, we're 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 investors. Obviously, you know, I, I want to make money. I would I'd love it if I could make money and also provide a comfortable place for people to live and satisfied tenants. But at the same time, you have to, you know, you have to serve your your members, but you also have to serve your investors. So how does that trickle down or trickle up, you know, so that everyone's making money and you have happy members? Yeah, I think for us when we created our core values for our company, and it's a really important exercise for everyone to kind of do, if you're getting, you know, whether it's, it's yourself solo as, as an investor or you're, you're partnering up with people, and I recommend you partner because, man, this thing takes a village, right? And so coming up with our core values was part one. Part two was this idea of hierarchy of, of, um, of stakeholders, right? And who is most important? Who do we answer to? And, you know, we had to be able to have this not only for ourselves, but also to share with our employees at our property management company, because they need to know where we as the owners sit in, in the world. And in our world, guess who's number one? It's not the investor. It's the member, it's the people paying the rent. They are customer number one. If you think about that, it has to be that way, because if you don't treat them well, they're not going to pay rent, or you're not going to find people that want to pay rent, or, you know, they're not going to be willing to pay a premium to live in the places that we, we, we operate. So we have to make the number one focus. It's not me, you know, the boss. It's not the investor that's investing money. It, it can't be because if we're serving the investor, they're not paying the rents. They're paying us to buy the property, but not, they're not paying the rents. So for us, it's, it's, uh, it's our, 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 our renters that live there. Number two, I think it's our, our staff. Um, then eventually comes the investors and then us as the operators themselves. So like we have to have that, that level of, of, um, you know, discernment between 
you know, who are we serving? And then ultimately, at the end of the day, what does happen, when we've round-tripped our deals, completed our deals, it always works out or has historically worked out for our investors. Um, We make this investment in the people that operate the properties, make the investment for the people that are paying, you know, rent to live there. And then, you know, over time, like we've increased the value, we see the value, and we we cash out, and we're able to to, to make everyone whole uh, in that sense. So hopefully that that answered your 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 good question on that. Yeah, it does. I, I, the next question, and and this this is kind of out of the scope of what an investor might care about, but I'm I'm curious. Yeah. When you sell the property, then what what does the new management do? Do they have the? Do you try to find a buyer with the same philosophy, or you just hope that the culture kind of continues? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, yeah. What we find is there really isn't anyone that operates the same way that we do. There are a handful of of, of, uh, of organizations of operators that we have run into, you know, in, in, in the small circle that is the real estate world, um, that have similar ideology, right? Like they believe in the value of making sure that the renter is customer number one, and that's great. And they're all about like improving the quality of life because they get it, they understand that. But there's not many of them. So as a consequence, what happens unfortunately is when we sell these these properties, you know the new management that comes in, uh, whether it's uh, vertically integrated or they're working with a third party, they're going to have their own way of, of doing things, um, and, and that can go in either direction. You know, we've had some pro- two properties actually that we sold. Unfortunately, the new management that came in, they didn't care about the property that the same way that we did, and you know, it's it very quickly quick to see, you know, what happens with, with Google, my business, you know, what kind of uh, reviews people are leaving uh, shortly thereafter. So we have not been in a situation where we sold the property, exited, and then have been retained or asked to, to kind of stay on. Um, it's sort of, um, it's sort of in the hands of, of the new ownership, unfortunately. unfortunately. Yeah, that, that, that's a tough one. I mean, you're doing, you're doing great things, but it's hard to balance that for sure. Yeah. Um, so talk about, you know, when, when you buy a property and it's a heavy value add, um, why is, just aggressively cost cutting, not necessarily the best practice for for your for the community and also for the investors. Man, uh, it's so funny. I feel like that right there is something that no one, no real estate guru talks about, uh, or they overlook it, like you know, cutting expenses as if it's just like operates in a vacuum. It can't, and it doesn't. Uh, there was a group that I was part of. Uh, as a passive investor early on, and I didn't realize it because I didn't know any better. And, you know, when, you, when the shoes in their foot, you kind of realize these things, but part of their strategy was, and it's also like good timing, right? They were, they got into real estate when no matter what you did, everything was going up. Part of their strategy was just cut everything on the expense side. And if you think about that, you can do that to a degree, but remember what I said early on about how, like, who's your number one customer? Who, who are you trying to serve? That's the people that live there. If you're cutting expenses that are, influential in the quality of life there. Maybe it's the landscaping, making sure that the place looks clean. Uh, or maybe it's the service technicians. Maybe like, you're like, you know what? I can't afford two or three service techs. Let's cut down to one. And that poor one guy or girl has to run around and service, you know, 150, 200 uh, different apartment units. That's impossible for them to do by themselves. And so what's going to suffer as a consequence, the level of service. And so you went from a point where like, okay, I'm expected to pay my rent on the first of each month. But when I have a problem, when I call you to tell them my toilet's clogged or there's a cockroach in my apartment, right? You're going to tell me it's going to take a week for you to get there because there's no one to service me. That's going to piss me off. And I'm going to be really agitated. And I'm going to go into the real estate office on the first, roll up my sleeves and start yelling about how no one's helping me 
when I have a problem, which is exactly what everyone else does. And what we try to stay ahead of and not doing because it helps us, number one, stand out. And number two, everyone's used to being treated like that. So when you don't do that, you stand out immediately in a good way. So um, I don't think cutting costs without really taking into consideration what the implications are of that. Um, it could be very, very short-sighted and, and very detrimental to the overall goal of what you're trying to do in a, as a value-add investor. Yeah, and, and it can certainly end up backfiring, right? As you said, if you have a bunch of angry tenants, they're moving out, then your your turnover's higher, and now your costs are higher, and you cut costs for, for no reason because now everything costs more. So it's yep. like a – it's a cycle. So that, that's super interesting to me. And, you know, so – in the current market, you know, rents are going down in places, barely staying the same in places. People have pro formas that, you know, have rent targets of, of aggressive growth or moderate growth. So how can you be confident that you'll achieve the rent targets that you have in, in the pro forma, you know, when, when you're buying properties in, in this type of uncertain market? I think the at, after a certain point, my opinion is that pro forma goes out the window. Um, there has been... You know, I picked an interesting time to get into real estate, commercial real estate. <laughs> it's yeah. like it was one th- – I got in in 2018, 2019, and it was literally one thing after the other one. I feel like getting through this allows you, me, us to like have a whole new sense of what normal is because normal for me has been crap show, right? That's been COVID for many years, eviction moratoriums, interest unprecedented interest rate hikes in just a short period of time. Um so like what, you know, what is normal? And like normally what you would do is you have a performer, you take over a property and then you start measuring everything to that, right? You know, each month to see if you're on track or off track. But how do you do that when you have rapid inflation? You know, your, your costs are 5X, 10X higher than, not 10X, it's a bit extreme, 10%, you know, 20% higher than what you underwrote for. Or your insurance goes up 50%, right? Or 100%. You know, how do you adjust for that? At a certain point, it's like it doesn't make any sense to hold on to this this ideal that we had, and you have to readjust. And that's what we've been that's what we've been doing. That's what we communicate to our investors, and that's what we've been doing in our properties. It's like, okay, we had an idea it was gonna be this. We didn't realize insurance was gonna go up. You know, three x. Uh, taxes went up even higher than we you know, we planned because for all the reasons, our write offs went up because we couldn't evict anybody. Like all this stuff, and so you just have to adjust. And that's what we we've, we've done. And what, what's the uh, what's the importance of communicating that to your investors? Uh, it's all about expectation setting, um, and I think what I think what investors ultimately want to know is that the people that are in charge of their money, right, the, the operators, the sponsors, the syndicators, that they kind of have a sense of what they're doing, even if they're making it up as they go along, because that's what you have to do, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. Your job, whether you realize it or not or like it or not, is to solve problems. And you can have a business plan. And it's like this, the Mike Tyson saying, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. That's just the reality of, of business. And you know what we're doing is we're operating a business. So we can have a plan, but ultimately we have to adjust to how the world you know, happens around us. And being able to communicate that, communicate that to investors, which I know I could have done a better job along the way, but you know, this is part of the learning experience and learning and growing from that, just recognizing that taking ownership of it. And then just saying, Hey, look, I- I'm going to do better at doing this. Um, I think that's all you can hope for, right? I mean, the, the alternative is, you know, you make things up where you, you hide things, you hold things from behind or you make it seem better than what it is. That doesn't really get you. It buys you a little bit of time, but then it still puts you in a, in a funky spot. 
Yeah. What um what do you see the where do you see the multifamily market going in 2024 with you know interest rates hikes are paused and and there's a lot of speculation that interest rates are going down. What do you see for the market in 2024 and how are you preparing for it? So there's one part is like what everyone wants to happen, right? I remember back in the beginning 22 early 23 it was like survive to 24 was the saying did you did you hear that for a bit jim survive i've heard that i've heard survive to 25 yes yeah, yes heard it both and then it shifted along the way to become survive to 25 and that makes more it rhymes better than 24 yes. <laughs> um but unfortunately it's like oh crap i gotta get through all 23 and then i gotta get through 24 and then i gotta get 25 okay well as someone that like literally we, we just closed a refinance for our last floating rate loan on Friday, the 29th, like the last day of the year. And to say that, like, you know, whew, we are glad to be done with that is an understatement. Um, I, 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 for 23, it was like a bittersweet year. Like it was hard for us to do deals because rates were changing and all that stuff. But like, I still felt I was seeing, seeing a lot, a lot of opportunity, a lot of deals. Uh, and I still, I think, I know we are going to continue to see that. We're going to see operators that have to get out from floating rate debt uh, or they can't refinance or whatever, you know, things kind of getting in the way. Um, there's opportunities for investors to come in and scoop up deals at a discount. You know, and unfortunately, investors are going to have to take a haircut. Uh, I believe we're going to still see that in 24. Uh, as to whether or not interest rates are going to go up or down, I don't know. I'm frankly surprised that or unsurprised that the Fed announced, hey, guess what? Inflation's done. We're <laughs> going to stop because maybe they were getting pressure from the White House. I don't know. Um, I'm not the guy that has all the gold that makes all the rules. Um, I feel like it's my opinion is it'll be a more stable year than it was 23 because 23 was, was really crazy to have all those interest rate things. Um, I still think there's buying opportunities. Uh, I still think there's a lot of operators on the sidelines or, you know, uh, investors on the sidelines waiting for things to shake out. And again, I, I've seen deals where there's 20, 30% plus uh, discounts on buying them uh, than where they were a year ago, right? So there is buying opportunity. And also too, like I had this funny sense, Jim is like, if everyone is waiting for like the moment, like the big buying opportunity. Um, I don't know if they realize like everyone else is waiting for that. And so yeah. when the deal comes up and everyone's on the sidelines with their dry powder and they're ready to jump on that thing, all they're doing is bidding up that deal back to where it was, you know, two, three months ago or a year ago. Right. So I'm a little hesitant on believing that everyone's waiting for the buying opportunity of a lifetime to magically happen. They're going to time the markets. I don't know. That's, that's my, my ramble. Yeah. Well, it's always difficult, impossible to, uh, to time the market. So you just got to go deal by deal and, and find the ones that work for you. Yeah, man. Um, hey, this is this has been a fantastic conversation. If if listeners are interested in learning more about what you do, what's the best way they can connect with you? So they can check me out on uh, jpalbano.com. Uh, I'm in the process of uh, finishing up a book. Uh, it is tentatively titled "So Rich You Can Quit." For those that are watching, here's the uh, the first copy of it. Uh, I'll nice. be releasing that in, in Q1, Q2 of 24. Uh, so uh, you can go to jpalbano.com forward slash. Uh, podcast, uh, and then you can sign up for a uh, for access to the book before it comes out. But um, that's how you can check me out. Awesome. We'll put that all in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Jim, thank you for having me. And I love the questions here. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show. It has been a pleasure to be the guest host today. If you'd like more information about Left Field Investors and how we educate limited partners, provide a network, and give access to deal flow, please visit leftfieldinvestors.com or reach out to me directly at jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. 
I hope you learned a lot from the show today. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and share the Real Estate Syndication Show with your friends so they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.